Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints while you're working on your comparisons. Let's talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, this week we're turning over a new... Leaf? Not a new episode of the Double Loop Podcast, hopefully even a new premium content episode of the Double Loop Podcast. If you haven't seen one of those yet... Just send us a dollar or so. I mean, come on, give us a dollar. You know, it's just a dollar. Give us a dollar through patreon.com slash double loop podcast and see the, uh, well, the Glenn and Eric compare stuff on video uh, episodes. All right, so what do you got for me? Well, we just had our Super Bowl here. So in honor of the lowest scoring, most boring (laughs) Super Bowl ever. I fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going with Monday morning quarterback or patreon subscriber monday morning patreon subscriber when you wake up on monday and hopefully have a new episode of double loop podcast checkout feel free to contribute to patreon and continue to support this podcast all right glenn uh so a couple things and i can't remember if i mentioned it or not but just in case i didn't thank you to thomas for increasing your pledge i'm pretty sure i mentioned this in a recent episode but I couldn't remember, so I wanted yeah, to say it again. I remember. Okay, good. Well, also, Thanks, thank Tom. you to uh, to Joe for your uh, new contribution uh, every month to the Double It Podcast, and also to Lawrence. Keep it coming our way, guys. Uh, really appreciate all of that. Uh, just big, huge thanks to uh, to all those uh, patrons and all those listeners that have been checking us out for five years now, and for telling other coworkers and friends and just you know people uh, about what we do here Uh, that also helps us out so speaking of turning over a new leaf uh, i've got some some news from people out there so last month i decided that i was going to leave the arizona dps crime lab i'm no longer with them resigned from there and decided to move along to uh, a a private contracting company that also does comparison work. So I'm still in the field, still doing comparisons, but uh, just working for a different company. I felt that it was uh, it was time for a change. I'm looking for something new, new adventure, um, someplace also where um, where I fit better. I for a long time, for you know, for a couple of years now, I've been questioning if if Arizona is really the right place for me, but, um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing if this, uh, this new, this new company is, uh, is a better fit for me. And, uh, I'm excited about that. I'm, uh, I'm going to do a lot more comparisons, uh, not doing the processing side anymore. Uh, so far it's like a bunch of great people and, um, learning a lot, getting up to speed on all the new procedures that I'll need to learn systems, you know, policies, just the new nuances of, of how a different agency, a different group of people works uh, when they uh, document and search and compare and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, it's a new thing, a new leaf for me. And um, I, I'm, I'm excited about uh, what the future has in store for me. Uh, still want to wish all my coworkers back in Arizona the best and, and all my colleagues back in Arizona at, at other agencies, uh, the best. And, and I'm still going to be back there a lot and, uh, and, and hope to uh, remain involved in the wider forensic discipline, even though there's this, this change in, in who I'm working for day to day. Uh, but I also think that, uh, this will give me a chance to, 
uh, to teach more, to go to more local conferences, uh, to just work on the Ray Forensic stuff uh, that um, that I've wanted to develop over the past couple of years, and and I think this this new setup is going to work out well for me with all that. So here's to turning over a new leaf and uh, starting a new adventure. That is my my big news today. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty big pretty big news. I mean, I've known now for a couple of weeks here that you're going to be doing this. Um, so I have a few questions for you. And uh, is it regular casework? And what what can you tell us? Uh, so the with the the new contract, it is uh, um, just latent print comparisons. Uh, I'm just excited to get started. You know, it's it's um, still in the process of getting getting spun up on new protocols, new thing, ways things are done, new computer systems. You know, all the all the subtle differences. And, you know, the the ridges are still the ridges, but. Uh, you know, every every agency or every company has their own, you know, subtly different way to do things. I'm jumping into some practice comparisons and uh, reading up on, you know, how things are compared, how things are searched, how things are documented, and uh, definitely looking forward to being being signed off and uh, and let go over the next couple of weeks. All right, so you won't be doing any processing per se. It is an accredited agency. It, it's as it's a contracting company, so it's not accredited and no processing, just all comparisons, uh, all on screen, all digital, which you know totally comfortable with. Obviously, you know, you know, you know me working in in uh, in that kind of environment, I I will miss having that uh, handheld piece of paper, ten print card in front of me, just so I can you know spin it around and rotate it and. To to find the uh, the right orientation before scanning and putting it on screen, but I guess that'll be the the only real difference from what I've been doing with on screen comparisons. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I, one, one, are there lots of examiners that you work with? Uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's a good sized team. Um, so variety from multi years, multi decades experience, certified, non certified, brand new. So. Definitely a good mix of uh, of people that uh, I'm, you know, starting to get to know and uh, look forward to to working with, and you know, discussing distortion and double taps and twists and movement and whether crazy points I'm seeing are actually there or not. <laughs> you know what they're in for, Glenn? Yeah. Okay. Well, no, I, that's all very exciting, Eric, and uh, definitely congratulations. Wish you the best and hope this uh, hope this works out. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. All right. So um, I had, we got an email in with a little bit of a story. Um, so this is from uh, Lincoln Pogue in uh, in Colorado. He uh, he had a funny story about the word palm print. Uh, so. Uh, he wrote up a report and uh, you know sent that off to a tech review and it came back saying uh, asking you know saying basically no no you can't spell palm print as one word you have to split that up into two words because that's you know that's the spelling of palm print so uh, <laughs> he said fine you know he revised the spelling sent it forward as two words 
but was curious as to why fingerprint is one word, footprint is one word, even fingertip is one word, commonly accepted as compound words, but palm print was commonly not. Um, and it, my first thought was way back to, uh, you know, Galton, right? The original book, 1882, fingerprints is, was published as two separate words, right? Right. So um, anyway, so Lincoln said that just out of curiosity, he reached out to Miriam Webster and uh, emailed them <laughs> and uh, forwarded on the letter that uh, he got back. So here it is. Let me read this off to you. This, this just, I was laughing all day after I read this. Dear Lincoln, the styling of words in Merriam-Webster dictionaries is based on the actual usage by writers of American English. I can't say for certain why fingertip and footprint are typically used as single words, while palm print is most often written as an open compound. That sounds like really official, but um, the name of what that's called. Uh, one possibility is because it's not as commonly used. Palm print appears somewhat odd to the eye, perhaps because of the two-letter P's or the M and P next to each other, and seems potentially less recognizable as a word. With that said, there is a reasonable amount of usage for the closed compound palm print, one word, to warrant its inclusion as a less commonly used variant styling. The closed compound should appear in the next online dictionary update alongside the open compound, two separate words, palm print. So That's awesome. <laughs> he, he wrote in to Merriam-Webster, and they're changing the dictionary for him to include both as acceptable usages. And wow. That's, no, that, that's great. That's, that's great. Uh, All right. Some thoughts here. <laughs> All right. First of all, I hate that. I hate when reviewers do this. I, I really loathe it. I if, if it's not technically wrong, please send the report on. But this idea that the palm print, uh, you know, the palm print, one word, two word, uh, it drives, it does drive me crazy. Uh, so it's funny that this happened in this agency. He sounds like he handled it very professionally. And I love, the, I, I love it. I just, I love going to Webster and now they're going to, well, they have noticed the same thing. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, you're right, they're making this change, they're, or at least they are declaring it in, you know, in the online dictionary. Right. But they noticed the variant spellings as well in the usage. Uh, so, um, both are out there, both are acceptable. Right. That's, for all of the spelling Nazis in the world, <laughs> uh, and I've caught my fair share of spelling errors in the past, and on occasion, you know, they they were really errors. And on other occasions, I uh, learned that there are other ways to spell things. Um, the the most com the most memorable one I learned was uh, labeled. I've always spelled labeled with two L's, you know, one at the beginning and one towards the end. Uh, but uh, learned that especially in the Midwest, uh, labeled with three L's is, uh, is accepted or, or more common. I have never seen that. With, uh, you know, L-A-B-E-L-L-E-D. I have never seen that ever. <laughs> ever. I, was, 
<laughs> the That's funny, crazy. the funny thing is, the coworker that said that insisted that it was a Michigan thing, and especially from Michigan State. <laughs> All right. Well, th- th- I guess that kind of makes sense. <laughs> but, in that maybe, um, hmm. Well, hmm. <laughs> anyway, I, I looked it up, and they are both listed as acceptably correct. So. Wow. It was like fine, you know, you know that I'll just sign off on that. But um, to to yeah, go to the lengths of of writing in takes a, a certain type of person. But uh, for that, for the uh, the dictionary to write back and say that they're updating the online dictionary to include that version, man, that's that is a yeah. It's either a spelling Nazis greatest dream or worst nightmare i can't decide which well done lincoln well done (laughs) absolutely all right well in other double loop pod news (laughs) we have a new member that we're welcoming to the family well he's actually been kind of part of the family already but true in an official capacity he's going to be assisting us we put a call out to folks to help with uh, with various things we had going on, and I threw out there we could really use someone with a little bit of website experience. And Michael White of Australia, in fact, specifically New South Wales Police, has offered to assist us in putting together the website. And he has been throwing stuff together, and hopefully we'll have a website up here really soon. Michael White if you're a long-time listener, you may recall from, what, three, four years back? Something like that. Or so. It's been a little while. Uh, Michael White joined us on a panel at the IAI. He's an Australian fingerprint examiner expert, and he also runs his own website, news site there in Australia, and the title of that is In the Loop. In the Loop. Yeah. And that's, yeah, do you have it in front of you so you can spell it out? Yep, and that is www.in-the-loop.net.au. Uh, right. Or, or you can just search in-the-loop fingerprints, and, and that should take you to it too. And uh, it, it's a great news feed for fingerprint and forensic issues. Yep. I've got, I've got it sort of linked right on uh, my uh, whatever you call it, homepage when it opens up, you know, through your browser, so you can see uh, new stuff that's going on. It's uh, basically a news feed, and it's it's very very useful, very helpful. And Michael keeps that up to date, and it's kind of a a news file, forensic file. And yeah. we're we're really actually excited to have him joining and so we'll be announcing a website up soon which is great because then we can put all these links and index the episodes and all these things and other resources we've been wanting to do for a while so thanks michael for for joining the team and really looking forward to to launching that website yeah it's 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 our it's our growing network so we got uh becca doing the twitter we got uh michael doing the website we got uh gibby gibby uh, compiling, uh, indexing, indexing, referencing all the episodes. Uh, so yeah, things are, things are improving and, uh, hopefully it, it becomes a more useful tool to examiners out there as they're, you know, listening to new episodes, but also going back to find information in old episodes. Uh, it, it's just a, uh, 
between this website and the indexing in particular, uh, it becomes a more helpful tool for everyone out there. Yeah, and one of the things that Michael shared with us that we thought we'd share with you guys is something uh, on research from the Tangent, or this was referenced actually from a recent episode where we were at the OSAC and we had Gianni Ribeiro on from Australia, and she was talking about the research that they were doing there in the Tangent group, although she was saying Tanyan group. <laughs> Tanyan, Tanyan. It may have been the accent. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, <laughs> she uh, she was making reference to it, but they have a video out on YouTube that a listener the listeners can check out, and we'll put a link to it on our website. But if you just Google Tanyan Thompson fingerprint expert research through Google, you'll 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 find this on YouTube. And if you check out the link, it's actually really very cool. It's it's a call for fingerprint experts around the globe to get involved in their research. And what they're trying to do is very similar to some research that was conducted in the U.S. or started to be conducted in the U.S. maybe four or five years ago, where Drawer was doing a similar kind of approach where they were putting together very specific tasks different kinds of tasks to identify experts. And they want to start first by identifying the best of the experts out there, figure out who's a good expert, and then what makes them tick? What skills do they have compared to other individuals? So they're going to give all different kinds of tasks and puzzles where they uh, try to have – they they show limited information and you determine which hand it's from or what, what finger it's from or what the pattern type is or, you know, spot the difference or uh, predict what area is missing here from the fingerprint, what should the ridges do in this region. If you go to the video, you see all these little tasks. And if you really like puzzles and you really like fingerprints, I highly recommend you check this out and maybe reach out to them because I suspect – they would be interested in having lots of experts participate. So it, it looks pretty cool, and I, I like this idea. It's something that, um, like I said, has been explored before, but but maybe not in the in the same way that this group is doing it, with the same momentum that they have. And I, th- I think um, trying to figure out what makes fingerprint examiners good at their job is a noble effort in the sense that they're going to then take that and try to turn it around for how to how to train people to become good fingerprint experts. And that has some value. So, uh, yeah, um, with our website coming soon, uh, just go ahead and um, head to, if you're just listening to this uh, over just the automatic download that your podcast player just grabbed for you, uh, head to... Uh, rayforensics.com or soundcloud.com or even patreon.com uh, one of the websites that actually hosts and plays the podcast and in the description we'll put the uh, the link to this video because uh, it's not something you can search for you actually have to have the actual specific link to then uh, go watch the video on youtube uh, but yeah definitely excited about the research that they've been doing down there for geez, seven plus years now. Uh, and everything that Johnny described from our interview with her. And, uh, well, you just described something that'll make me, uh, uh j- jump right in. If you enjoy solving puzzles and you like fingerprints, uh, that that's definitely me. And, uh, and I, I look forward to, 
you know, seeing what they can do, what they what they're uh, interested in, and where all this research goes. It's it's, it's been uh, it's been just great stuff coming out of there for years. Yeah, I, I, I watched the video, and one of the things I, I liked about it is it starts right away with recognition of the expertise that exists in, in fingerprinting in fingerprint experts and they've always done this i mean you know in their papers yeah they've been very clear that there is a fundamental difference between a fingerprint expert and a novice and they they you know they recognize that and practically celebrate that that difference and it, it's cool because the video compares fingerprint experts to uh diagnosticians uh, chess players chess experts uh various other sort of experts in, in different kinds of fields that they recognize some of the same patterns of expertise that you see in these other well-known fields of study and where they look at you know um where they look at what constitutes expertise so it's it's kind of kind of cool that of all the forensic disciplines it's not like anyone's doing this study with dna experts so or right, you know right. it's 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 cool that they've chosen fingerprints probably because of the visual aspect of it it's probably a big component but right. I, I think that's uh that's interesting although again like this research and what the drawer group was looking at so much of it focuses on, is on the visual component which i obviously is a huge part of it but I still have yet to hear much about the decision component. You know right. what I mean? I mean, everything's about the searching and finding, recognizing what's different, what's the same, matching this, matching that, predicting this, predicting that. But very little about the decision-making component, which I almost think these days with technology like APHIS doing a lot of our searches or a case APHIS approach or some of these other things that the searching technique I won't say is completely obsolete because it's not, and I don't know well, that it will ever become obsolete. No, because I'm, but I I do think that there will be more shifting focus towards documentation and decision making in the future. Yeah, I, yes, I I think the the visual component you know, has a couple different aspects. The, the you know the first step obviously is looking at just at the latent print of just being able to find the stuff that's in there um and while the you know autocoders have gotten better and better over the years to find those uh features for us uh there's still a lot hanging out in the weeds that that we have to dig for ourselves then once you find it then the searching aspect uh can take over and can be helped along obviously with case APHIS, uh, technology like that and then there's that decision making aspect which especially nowadays i i feel like the decision making part is going to be the first thing that's that we start pushing more and more of the responsibility onto the technology uh, like you're saying the searching part is kind of already in that realm but uh, it feels like like examiners are much more interested as soon as possible to push some of that decision-making responsibility onto uh, the technology, uh, alleviating some of that responsibility. And that's, that's a whole nother discussion to have about when that's appropriate and when it's not and how much to do so and all that. But 
it's a good point uh, uh, in the end, though, that 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 decision making part is is a, another aspect to study. I, I think in the end, the uh, the visual capabilities of examiners and that part might be the little easier to, to do the research on uh, the decision-making thing, you know, quite a bit harder with just all of the myriad of, of information that comes in and gets channeled down to the single decision at different parts of the process. There's, there's obviously different decisions, but it's all this information coming down to a decision and then to another decision and to another one and and all these little decisions along the way that come together and and make up an overall decision at the end of a case. It's just so much going on in there that would need to be broken apart and studied and looked at that just seeing what people can see uh, (laughs) might be easier initially and also important to study. Yeah. And, and again, Shout out, you know, a little shout out to Gianni. I'd look forward to seeing the research that uh, she's coming out with and yeah. the group. And I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be good things in the future there. Absolutely. All right. So we, we talked last episode a bit about investigative leads and uh, the paper from Israel uh, where they basically they got a hit in APHIS, but it was kind of thin. So they decided to basically to not report that as an identification. More recently, there's been a lot of discussions. Uh, A question went out through Sandy Siegel's email group about uh, whether or not this is an appropriate thing to do. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that and some of the responses that she got. Um, One of the first things I want to bring up on this is that is to clarify that there's two, I think, two main things that are going on here that need to be kept relatively separate because they're kind of separate things. Uh, The first is some agencies are reporting out, quote-unquote, investigative leads because they get an APHIS hit, any APHIS hit, um, and they've decided administratively not to put that hit through a verification process and to just report it out as a, quote, investigative lead, meaning go take a look, ask some questions. If you need this for a, an, an arrest warrant or if you need this for court, let us know. We'll put it through our full process. But right now, this is just going out as a basically an unverified identification. Now, that is very separate from this other concept of investigative lead where a latent is searched and an examiner and that examiner's verifier, probably more than one verifier, all review the comparison and find it to be, to have some similarities, but just not quite enough for an identification. And then reporting out that person's name uh, to officers basically saying it's never going to get any better than this. It's not like we're going to come up with an ID later on, but this might be someone to take a look at. So those are two very different concepts and uses, and they've both at times used the term investigative lead, but they're very different. Um, and I think in some re- some 
some people may not be fully aware that there is this distinction and use in two very different ways. So wanted to point that out first. Right. And I'm going to comment on that. But first, a word from our sponsor. Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories is a full-service, independent forensic lab that specializes in the development of latent fingerprint evidence. They serve law enforcement, private parties, corporations, PIs, prosecutors, defense. Uh, anyone interested in having evidence processed should go to Go Evidence Forensic Labs. Uh, they're committed to providing the highest standards of excellence with the most advanced technology available in the industry, and their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. And they are your direct source for VMD, vacuum metal deposition technology, and they can even process cold cases with this technology. It's basically putting the object into a chamber and having very, very tiny bits of gold or other uh precious metals deposited onto the fingerprint residue left behind. Uh, they provide sales service training on this technology, and Brian and Scott are very passionate about it, and they always enjoy the t- chance to talk about the capabilities of that technology, VMD systems, consumables, tips on maximizing the process, whether you need them to process your evidence or you have your own VMD technology and need tips on getting it to work to its fullest potential. Standard turnaround times on most cases is only two weeks. Consultations are always free. Goevidence.com. Yeah, that's great. And again, you said it in there too, cold cases. You got a cold case, you've tried everything, you know, in your protocols, you know, it's a big case, or, you know, it's a big case and you can't do any more processing. Why not? Why not reach out to them, ask your manager, hey, can we send this out to another lab to do additional processing that we can't do here? I mean, it's, it's a great, uh, it's, it's a great service that they provide and I highly recommend using them. So back to investigative leads and these, these two different terms and two different aspects of this uh, terminology. Yeah. Thanks for making the distinction between the two. That was one of the things that was interesting in the emails uh, or the, the responses in Sandy Siegel's email list that she sends out the, what do you call that? Is it uh, list serve email, or list serve email blast email list serve something like that. Okay. Yeah. And there were, there were several, several responses in there that echoed some of the things that we talked about in, in our episode and it caught my eye and I thought it was just worth spending a couple of minutes talking about. But thanks for making that, that distinction. You know, reading through them, if the listeners had a chance to see this and if, if anyone wants, I'm sure we can forward it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just email us. Yep. You know, so one of the first people said, you know, I'm adamantly in favor of reporting out what I call APHIS inconclusive. The situation is rare, but in the event of very serious crime or related crimes, you know, like uh, serial burglaries, etc., this could be an invaluable tool to provide investigators with a name for investigative purposes only. And they go through all the things that, that we talked about as well in the episode. And then you get into a few that were not as supportive as the approach. And they, this, I was alluding to the, to, to the things I've heard over the years, but it was great that just two days later reading, <laughs> reading. Right. Exactly the, the concern, the, the serious concern about reporting these out and, 
some of the, and I'll just, I'll go through a few. And so one of the ones that caught my attention was, I think using the APHIS candidate list as an investigative lead is a dangerous path to take. Since those in the candidate list are likely to have nothing to do with the crime being investigated, it's a huge distraction and a waste of time for the agency. If it's good enough to be entered into APHIS, it's good enough to ID. And that caught my, my attention there because, as we know, Sometimes the person entering the latent print is not always the person who does the identification or, and obviously won't always be the person doing verification. So just because something got entered into APHIS doesn't mean it's always good enough to ID. And San Diego was a great example of that. And why they ran into it in the first place was they had an APHIS tech who was really running pretty thin stuff through APHIS and had a different threshold internally for what she thought was sufficient, not only for APHIS, but for identification. And as soon as this APHIS tech then turned the the case potential hit over to the certified examiners working the cases, they went, I never would have run this in the first place. But now they're looking at a potential source and that person can't be excluded, but they have some similarities. So I, I thought that was... Um, something we didn't specifically talk about because I don't believe that, but after reading that, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily a, an accurate position to take. I, I, I see their fear and I, I can see it, I can see it be used properly and I could see it being overused in the wrong way. So what I mean by that is, if it's good enough to be entered into APHIS, it's good enough to ID. So yes, theoretically, when a latent is searched under most agencies' policies, it's searched because it's good enough to ID. Now, that's a, like we've talked about many times before in this podcast, that's a prediction that's not always correct. Uh, it's a prediction based on what you see in just the latent. And when you get, you get the no next to it, it may be just simple enough. Um, there's a an example in the figs, uh, speaking of Sandy Siegel, but all the fingerprint interest group images, there was one latent on a, on a trigger, and the exemplar is uh, like a flat that's missing, you know, a big chunk of the exemplar. So you take a latent that's, yeah, it's fine. It's got 13, 14 points. And you search it, and it hits to an exemplar that only has six or seven of those points. Well, now what do you do? Everything matches that's there. Um, maybe there's no other cards in the database for the guy. This is probably the uh, the simplest scenario of how this can come up. Uh, but there there needs to be some mechanism to give a report. Maybe it's that incomplete, you know, I need to, to work on better exemplars from this guy, this name, but now that name's in the report. Uh, similarly, it can happen where it just turns out you thought it was good enough, but it turns out it wasn't. And, you know, maybe that's, it's in some cases appropriate to state that of, I compared it, there's similarities, I don't see any major differences. In the new OSAC scheme, it would be support for same source. Now, on the other hand, I can see this going totally wrong where uh, examiners, just like the next writer responds back, 
having the, you know this person get reported out that has nothing to do with the crime just because uh, Miss Mrs. Wilson, some third grade teacher, has something that's kind of similar to the lady that got searched doesn't mean her name should be going out to report. And absolutely, I totally agree. Just because you find a close non-match doesn't mean that needs to go out into a report to tell the officer, oh, hey, go take a look at this. Maybe it's actually the same, the, the, the right person. So when it is a close non-match, and that's, a, that's really taking the time and finding maybe only a couple differences uh, between the latent and the known but they're still strong enough to exclude or strong enough not to put this name on a investigative lead report to not move forward with those. So I guess what I'm saying is I I like the idea and every agency should have a plan to do that because it's going to come up even if you you know, don't like the idea. It's going to come up in some aspect, even if you just need better exemplars, but this should be a relatively rare thing if you're searching uh, latents that um, you feel should be uh, identifiable. You know, that's your prediction to begin with. Does all that make sense? Or would I just rambling for like five minutes? <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, it, it definitely makes sense. And I was rambling. Okay, both. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to check both boxes there. <laughs> The point I was, I wanted to, I think, make here ultimately is there are lots of fears about this, but many of those fears don't ever seem to come true. And that's what I think bothers me about this is the, the fear that if I report an inconclusive, the cop's not going to understand and the guy's going to get locked up. You know, it's a dangerous path. Yet I don't know of a single situation where that's actually ever happened. Um, the idea that if we use this as an investigative lead, that this person is going to get accosted all the time and, and they're going to get locked up and there's going to, again, I don't know that that's ever actually happened. I hear all the time from examiners, this is a concern, this is dangerous, this is, this is what's going to happen, but yet I don't know that it actually does and I'm not aware of a situation in my 20 years that I've actually seen this occur. And so I, I think that I, that's right. ultimately where I was going to go was there's a lot of fear here. You're right. I, I do see some fear. And like just going back to, back to the beginning, it's fear about different things. So one response is a fear of reports going out without verification. Mm-hmm. That's one issue. And then the, another one is... Um, hey, uh, can I say something on that? Yeah. Can I share a story? Yeah, go ahead. So I, I kind of did that once. And this was back in the day when I first started. And it was really before our agency had taken a rigorous ACE V stand. Okay. And in fact, at, in that day, we weren't even verifying um, identifications to elimination sources. Right. Uh, the homeowner, vehicle owner, et cetera. We, we were only identifying suspect and this was back in the year 2000 2001 or so and we had this we had this local case that was a pretty it was a pretty big deal is this serial robber who was going around to these restaurants and it was making the news here because he was doing this fairly frequently and there were uh, there were all these reports of him going to the restaurant 
talking to the manager, you know, or asking to see the manager. And, and I should cl- clarify with, you know, these fast food restaurants, McDonald's, Burger King's, Wendy's, etc. He'd ask to see the manager and ask to fill out uh, an application form. The manager would go in the back to get the application and then he'd follow her, you know, him or her back there, you know, uh, have a brandish a gun and then, you know, rob the place. And, you know, this kept, this kept going on with, with more and more frequency, and the cops were really wanting to try to catch this guy because they were concerned something's going to go wrong. You know, it, he's got a gun, he's doing this frequently, and if one of these managers, you know, does something or, you know, customer did, someone's going to get shot and killed. Right, right. Right. And so the, the cops actually presented me with a, a suspect in the case that had been viewed by a local jailer who said, because they had a little grainy image on a camera and the jailer said, Hey, I think I know who this is and gave a name. And th- we had a, a latent print from one of the applications that he had, that he had handled. It wasn't a very good latent print. And I compared it to the, the who they thought that it was. And it was like a whirl pattern on the, the evidence. And this guy had, you know, loop patterns, just no way it was him. Not even close. Right. Right. And I had stayed all day to, to process this and the PD, you know, which as you know, can take a while to prepare and run. And so everyone had left at the end of the day and I ended up getting an, an, another print off of this that hadn't been developed with Ninhydrin or at the time DFO that we were using. And I ended up getting a, a, another impression that didn't match this guy and hadn't been seen before. With, with and the I just PD? Said, with the PD and ended up running it in APHIS and I got a really thin hit, but in the end it was an identification and I thought, I know who this is. It's that is his print on here. And I was positive it was it was his impression. So I had this choice. Now I either can sit on this and I think it was a Friday that I had done this. It, well, that's, that was that was factoring it. So this was Friday. I stayed late on Friday. I can either wait till Monday when everyone comes in and get this verified, or he's been com- you know committing you know two or three of these a day. I could get this information to the police. They could sit on his place and keep an eye on the guy, and at least there's his lead here. And so I had this weird choice on what do I do, and I ended up. I ended up talking to the investigator saying, here's the name. This is not verified yet. Please recognize this has to be verified before I can give a report out. But here's the name that the, the and I, I'm, I'm staking my very early reputation on this. I mean, I was sure it was an identification and I was sure it'd be verified, but it wasn't pretty. And Ultimately, it did turn out to be the guy. In fact, and on Monday morning, um, someone came in. He didn't commit any robberies. He had actually gone to his girlfriend's place that weekend. They sat on him, and he didn't actually make any robberies. But then Monday, you know, when someone came in at like six a.m., they ended up verifying it. They called, and they, you know, they busted him right away. And and in fact, it was definitely him. He commit. He uh, confessed everything. He had money from the other places, and you know, it all all, all this came other evidence that was there. Right. Yeah, all the other evidence came together very, very nicely. And I remember, uh, you know, very worried. You know, did I make the wrong call? Because 
I wasn't sure what to do. And I, and I actually told a couple of people in the profession, a few fairly well-known people. And I remember one, one well-known examiner saying, if you had done that in our laboratory, I'd have sent you home three days without pay because you violated procedure. And I went, yeah, okay. I, you're right. I, I probably did. And I balanced this against, you know, what if uh, I, I come in Monday morning and this guy had actually shot and killed someone over the weekend and I had information right. that I should have provided. And I, I really felt torn. And, you know, looking back, there's probably, you know, and, and even this guru examiner said to me, why don't you just call someone to come in? Well, the nearest examiner lives, you know, an hour away, <laughs> literally lived an hour away. Right. And on the weekend, is he going to come in for this? And that, and I, and I just knew that examiner. I don't think he would have come in on the weekend. <laughs> we, we didn't have a way to email it or anything digital at the time. I mean, uh, today there are things that could be done, but back then it really was, you, you've got to make this call, you know, late in the evening and have this examiner come back on, you know, on, on the weekend on there. So, uh, I've been in that situation before, and I made the call to give the investigator the name before having it verified. And I was sure about the time, and I was sure it was going to get verified. But I, admittedly, today that would have been probably a corrective action uh, if I had done that today at at, uh, at the state laboratory. Yeah. Well, w- one thing, and we we kind of mentioned before, another option would have been to uh, to, to call uh, laboratory management and. Uh, uh, get get a approval to make a one time exception because you know, as long as management signs off on the exception, then it's not an exception. It's well, I mean, it's an exception, but it's an acceptable exception. Yeah, that's it. Um, it, it I mean, that's another way that it, it would probably go these days as well. But I think what kind of circling back to the comments here, a good point is this isn't just the lab starting this out of the blue. They've they've gone through and they've put in specific procedures about how this is done. They've trained their customers on uh, what these were, what these basically preliminary reports are with that, that don't have the verification, and that it's not good yet for an arrest. Just like in your case, you told the guy, "Hey, don't go arrest the guy based on just this. It's not verified yet, but if you want to go, just." watch him you know from a distance without i mean this isn't a wiretap kind of evidence yet this is a you know just have someone park outside his house for a little while maybe or um make sure he doesn't go get some mickey d's um (laughs) or apply for a job this this isn't just coming out of nowhere there is a lot of time invested in making sure or, or basically in ensuring that the problems that these uh, writers are fearing don't become realized in the application of this. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the caution that I think we talked about in our episode right. is that we support this approach, but you need to make sure you communicate clearly. Yes, communicate that a change it has happened, that this is different than the past, and proceed with caution. Sort of three C's: communicate communicate the change and you have caution that's that one aspect but then again like i was was just saying there is other fear about the thin or not quite enough um correspondence 
being reported out when it's not enough for an ID. Like you're saying, you knew it was enough for an ID. It just needed to get verified on Monday. Uh, some agencies are saying, well, I know this is good enough for an ID. My examiner sees it. The computer sees it. If it ever needs to go to trial, we'll get it verified. But there's other cases where basically it is getting verified, but it's still neither the original examiner nor the verifier think it's enough for an ID. And now does this get reported out? Right. And we talked about how San Diego handled that and they followed up on those. Exactly. You know, uh, sometimes it went nowhere and sometimes it actually developed additional evidence. And, um, but the, the fear that's written in here is, well, just because this third grade teacher has an accidental whirl, then every time a Layton comes in with an accidental whirl, her name's going to show up on the list and get reported. And that's, that's not what's, what's happening or what's being proposed here. It's in the rare case where not just the pattern is, looks similar, but when there are significant amounts strong evidence but not extremely strong evidence that they come from Mm. the same source sure uh let's say something in those cases well that should do it for this kind of hodgepodgey melting pot of an episode (laughs) with all sorts of different things another look at the investigative leads but also uh new news from me the podcast community growing, uh, all sorts of just a variety of topics. So I uh, want to mention, uh, again, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, Exclusionology. Uh, I've got that class coming to Hollywood, Florida, uh, the week of April 8th, the 8th of the 10th. Classes is classes starting to fill up, so anyone out there, uh, please contact me um, or go to rayforensics.com to register. And uh, the second half of the week, the 11th and 12th, is Gyro in Photoshop, a brand new class that I'm definitely excited to teach. Uh, it should be a fun time on the beach in Florida. I know, Glenn, you have one uh, coming up the, that same week in... Hacky Sack, New Jersey, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I've got uh, – in fact, I'm just going to push listeners towards ronsmithandassociates.com where they can find a number of classes, the Advanced DSV class, the Exclusion and Sufficiency class, and then two new classes – uh, one that's partnered with Idemia that's involving technology and ACEV. It's a technological look at ACEV using uh, technology, freeware, and other kinds of software like GIMP and ULW and the, their case APHIS system. And then a brand new class that should be dropping anytime now. And hopefully we've got our dates and our location set that will be a testimony class with me and uh, Carrie Hall and a defense attorney who is going to tell you all the problems with your court answers and all the, the <laughs> little places to poke at court answers and what a good defense attorney can do on cross-examination. That sounds like fun. Uh, all right, so follow us at Double Loop Pod on Twitter. Uh, email us, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. I'm going to be creating a Facebook page here soon, so look for that and, and uh, uh, to follow and join. Also, you can be notified of the, of the news and of when episodes drop, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and anyone out there looking to volunteer to, to help run that, uh, please contact me uh, about that. It would just be a matter of posting content to Facebook. So if you already do that every day, 
well, hey, it's nothing, uh, uh, it's nothing too much extra for you. And you get to join our growing community of, uh, of the Double Loop Podcast. All right, so the opinions expressed on the show belong to us and not to anyone that we work for. And with that, uh, thank you guys and talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. 